If you enjoy these podcasts, check out Enrico Signoretti's reports and blogs on gigaohm.com. They're about data storage and cloud computing, addressing all the topics covered in Voices in Data Storage. Welcome everybody, this is Voices in Data Storage brought to you by Giga. I'm your host Enrico Signoretti and today we will talk about innovative storage architectures made possible by new technologies. Usually when new technology is available to vendors and end users, nobody is able to take full advantage of it from day one. And data storage is no exception. At the beginning, everybody goes for the low-ending fruit, meaning uh, uh, they just put the, these new devices sometimes, this new technology in their system, and uh, they just take uh, what they give. There, then there are several iterations and uh, optimization, tuning, various forms of tweaking, and we get better performance, we, we get better use of this technology. But the real benefit can be exploited only when you start from scratch with a radical and not opinionative new architecture design, especially if you work around and for this new technology. My guest for this episode is Renan Halak, CEO and founder of Vast Data, an emerging data storage startup that exited from Stell very recently at Storage Field Day 18. At this event, they presented their company and the architecture of their product. They made a lot of bold choices and there is nothing that you can call traditional in their product. But this is also the biggest differentiator of Vast Data, which promises to bring the capacity and cost of our drives associated with the performance of flash memory. Pure Utopia, or did they really manage to do it? Let's discover it together. Hi, Renan. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. So thank you again for joining me today. And uh, maybe we could start with a brief introduction of yourself and your company. Sure. Uh, my name is Renan Halleck. Uh, as you said, founder and CEO of Vast Data. The company is a young one. We started three years ago. Uh, the idea was a little bit before then, but the company was founded beginning of 2016. Basically, we're trying to redo storage. Uh, I'll give you a little bit about the company, and then we'll dive right into the technology. So the company uh, today is 80 people, uh, headquartered in New York. Uh, that's where we have sales and marketing. Operations and support is in the Bay Area. And we are at a stage where we've just started selling product. Uh, we went GA end of 2018. Before that, a year before that, uh, we had uh, our alpha release. So we've had a long time in the field with customers. And before that, it was a year to a year and a half of architecting and building and understanding what it is that we need to build. Great. So let's dive in the technology. I was very impressed by your presentation at uh, Storage Field Day 18. You made a lot of bold choices for the design of your storage system, and you also promised this uh, performance at uh, uh, our disk drive level prices. Let's start a brief description of performance and capacity you can bring to the table and for which use cases. Sure. So basically, we're trying to break trade-offs. Uh, make it easy for the customer not needing to make any compromises with respect to storage. What we bring to the table is a single storage system that comes in at a price point that is on par with today's lowest cost tier five hard drive based systems. 
while not compromising on performance. Our performance is on par with today's tier one all flash storage systems and even a little bit better because we're not all flash, we're 99% flash and 1% 3D crosspoint. So you get even better performance than you would expect from all flash systems. All of this at a capacity level uh, that can fit the entire storage pyramid, basically eliminating the need for storage tiering and allowing the consolidation of uh, different workloads onto a single storage system. We do this in a very dense form factor, one petabyte per rack unit. Um, and what we say is if you have a single storage system that is big enough and cheap enough to hold all of your data and fast enough such that you're guaranteed sub-millisecond latencies to the entirety of your data set, why put your data on anything else? Okay, there is a lot to take in here. <laughs> so you're telling that you can support a lot of workloads and bring into the table both capacity as well as performance and, and again, with very low prices. This is, again, a lot to take in so quickly. So let's dive in a little bit more on how you do it. First of all, I started the episode talking about new challenges posed by the new technology adoption. And in the recent years, we have seen storage evolving radically. It once was the bottleneck for every infrastructure, but now with the new devices coming in and uh, uh, latency that are in the microseconds level and so on, we're starting uh, seeing uh, CPUs and networks saturated. Okay, SLC was used mostly like a tier zero or caching, and then MLC became our tier one, and then we had all the iteration, okay, down to QLC. And this, uh, uh, you know, brought the price down, but actually we got uh, a lot of other um, issues with QLC, which is also endurance, for example, and write performance, which is not that great. How did you uh, overcome all this limitation of QLC? Because you, you are thinking about consumer-grade QLC here, right? Yes. So QLC and low-cost flash in general is a big part of our story. It is one of the enablers of us to reach the price points that we need. It's not the only one, but it's a key one. In order for us to use QLC, we had to re-architect the system around it. Uh, if you were to take QLC drives with their low endurance and their poor uh, write performance today and put them in any other all-flash system, they would wear out uh, very, very quickly. And that is because of something known as write amplification. When you write to a drive, it garbage collects internally and moves data around such that the NAND gets more writes than you thought you wrote to it. And all existing all flash storage systems suffer from this. What you need to do in order to use QLC is a few things. A, in order to overcome uh, the write performance limitations, uh, which are mainly around inconsistent latencies and uh, the ability to write from multiple streams at the same time, what we do is we use 3D Crosspoint, Intel's new NVRAM technology. And we leverage it intensively 
both to overcome the deficiencies of the low-cost flash and to enable new types of algorithms and metadata structures that allow us to build a brand new architecture and allow us to bring the effective price of storage even lower than the price of QLC that we need to pay. In order to overcome, the way we do it is by always writing to Crosspoint from the application, acknowledging that write before we actually migrate the data off to low-cost flash. And then in the background, after we've had time to order the data into exact erase blocks, uh, have, after we've had time to understand when this data is expected to be overwritten, only then do we actually uh, migrate it to QLC flash using a single stream and uh, perfect erase blocks. Why do perfect erase blocks make a difference? Because doing so means that the drive doesn't have any write amplification internally. And at our level, we can make sure that we don't move data around because we have better insight into the data and the data write patterns. You are saying two important things. One is you are optimizing the writes and you get the performance from the uh, obtained memory. Okay. But uh, still, we are far from reaching uh, uh, our drive's price point, which are four or five times lower. So there are other pieces of this technology that are important to make it uh, work, right? Yes. So our architecture is the one that allows us to do these new things. Uh, when you look at our architecture, it's very different than existing scale-out storage systems. In fact, in many cases, it's the opposite. Instead of having nodes that are responsible for a specific piece of the namespace, we leverage NVMe over fabrics such that every one of our nodes can see all of the devices over an ethernet network as if they were direct attached. This gives us a global view and we leverage this global view in order to get economies of scale. Uh, what does that mean? The first piece of it is the use of QLC flash. The second piece of it is a new type of data protection system that doesn't waste a lot of space. The third piece of it is very, very aggressive data reduction that couldn't be done without this new architecture, couldn't be done without 3D Crosspoint, and enables us to get much better reduction ratios on data that has been notorious for not being compressible and not being deduplicable. Okay, again, so let's take and analyze one uh, uh, of these points at a time. So what do you do for data protection? Because you uh, uh, told us many times that you don't use erasure coding to limit the number of writes, but actually up to now, it was considered the best mechanism for data protection. Yes. So we have a new way of doing data protection uh, that leverages this global view that we have. In data protection, historically, you always had to choose between two of three things. Uh, those three things being efficient capacity overhead, not wasting a lot of space, uh, good resiliency, the ability to lose multiple drives at the same time without losing data, and rebuild speeds. How fast are your rebuilds? How long do you need to wait before you regain a redundancy when a bad thing happens? What we try to do is break the trade-off between all three. 
And the reason is that we're using consumer grade flash. And so we want to give uh, the, our users uh, the best resiliency that we possibly can. But the flash is more expensive than hard drives. And so we want to give our applications as much of the capacity as we can, obviously without hurting uh, rebuild speeds. How do we do it? We do very wide stripes. Uh, if you can imagine a RAID 6 stripe with four data drives plus two redundancy drives, we do much wider. Uh, we start at 150 plus four, so you can have four failures at the same time without losing any data, but you only pay about 3% in capacity overhead. And as a system grows, this mechanism is scalable such that we grow the stripes with uh, the system. And when we have more SSDs, you can imagine 500 plus 10 or 985 plus 15. The number of drives that can fail at the same time keeps growing such that you get much better resiliency, but the overhead keeps shrinking down to 2% or 1.5% such that you pay less for that resiliency. Okay, I see. So you are not uh, uh, paying that uh, sort of uh, penalty that usually you have with traditional um, data protection systems. Okay, I mean capacity penalty. And uh, uh, but still, uh, even if you don't pay that twenty percent, you reduce it to two three percent. We need to uh, to get to the. Uh, data footprint optimization to get to the to the right price and you you told us that you don't do compression and you don't do the duplication but you use a new technique correct so in most cases when you take into account a tco calculation uh total cost of ownership using the low cost flash and uh not wasting space using our data protection puts us close or at the price point of hard drive based systems uh, for example, this system is warranted for 10 years. You can keep it on the floor for a lot longer than you would hard drive-based systems. We fit a petabyte in a rack unit. You need a lot less space, a lot less power, a lot less cooling. Uh, the system is very easy to maintain. You don't need to go into the data center and replace parts because everything is fail in place. And so the operational benefits uh, bring us to a point where uh, we are on par without anything further, but we wanted to do better than that. We wanted to be better on a TCA analysis, total cost of acquisition, and have all those operational benefits come as a bonus to our customers. For that, what we did was design a brand new way of doing data reduction. And when we started, we were told by everyone that the unstructured data sets that we're going after, at least initially, uh, large uh, data sets in the tens to hundreds of petabytes, sometimes exabytes, don't compress very well and don't deduplicate very well. And the reason for that is that the application is at a better spot to compress data because compression is a local process. It's done at the block or at the file. And it goes all the way down to byte level granularity, which is the good part about compression. But if the application has already done it before it reached the storage system, there's not a lot left for us to do. The reason deduplication usually doesn't work on these data sets is because at tens and hundreds of petabytes, 
you don't normally keep exact copies of your data. And while deduplication is a global process uh, that is best done at the storage level, it works in coarse granularity. You have to have full blocks that are identical in order to find something. And you only get full blocks that are identical when you have exact copies of your data. So what we did, which is very different, is we looked at the data itself and we saw that when looking at a global namespace, you can find a lot of commonality, a lot of similarity that isn't being uh, taken advantage of by compression because it's local and by deduplication because it doesn't go down to byte level granularity. The differences between blocks are very slight and they are being missed by deduplication um, because it's uh, sensitive to noise. What we did was instead of looking for identical blocks the way deduplication does, we look for similar blocks, which there are surprisingly many of in these data sets. And the advantage we have once finding those similar blocks is that we can compress them against each other. In effect, doing a global compression scheme that goes all the way down to byte level granularity. However, when you want to read something, you don't need to decompress the entire namespace. You can only uh, read the blocks that you actually want to read. Again, this mechanism is made possible because of some new algorithms that we've developed, namely a similarity hash function, but also because of the global view that NVMe over Fabrics affords us and of 3D Crosspoint that acts as this very large write buffer and as a very large metadata store that uh, we use to keep our global dictionary. Are you telling me that the worst case scenario for your um, data footprint optimization technique is that you are as efficient as the duplication, but you can do uh, way, way better even in a very scattered kind of uh, data set with a lot of encryption also and uh, compressed data. Yes, it can be proven that mathematically that what we do is a superset of the best compression and the best deduplication. So we will always be at least as good as those mechanisms. But more than that, we see that on data that is not deduplicable and not compressible, and in some cases already pre-compressed, we see very good data reduction ratios where those mechanisms would not see anything. I can give one example of uh, backup data. And backup software already compresses the data and already deduplicates it. So when we act as a backup target, we get the data after those operations have completed. In many cases, we see that we can still give five to one data reduction ratios, seven to one data reduction ratios on top of those mechanisms, which is a testament to the fact that there is more similarity within the data than those mechanisms uh, can take advantage of. And that is our unfair advantage. Yes, in fact, this is impressive. And I suggest our listeners to watch the storage field day videos because in your demonstration at the end, you showed some of this with a, with a couple of examples from your customer and they actually were very, very good. 
So we talked a lot about the uh, the technologies involved in, in your in your system, but uh, just to recap a little bit. So you have this uh, uh, storage nodes. They are in an HA configuration, meaning two server for each capacity tray, if I can call it this way. And front-end nodes, they manage all the I.O. and the data protection and data reduction in a scale-out fashion. Uh, did I miss something here? No, that's exactly right. Uh, we disaggregate between logic and state. So we have these HA enclosures uh, that hold all of the state, uh, a lot of low-cost flash and a little bit of 3D crosspoint, and uh, give us NVMe over fabrics access to these devices but don't have any of the logic in them. In our containers, which is the second part of the architecture, we hold all of the logic, but they are completely stateless. This allows a few uh, very nice benefits to the customer. For example, you can grow capacity independently of performance. Uh, you can grow performance and shrink it uh, dynamically by spinning up more containers and spinning them back down. Uh, we also leverage this new disaggregated architecture to build what we call a shared everything cluster where each of these containers can see all of the devices and they don't have a specific responsibility so they can answer all of the applications requests without talking to each other this lends itself to much more massive scale than you would expect from traditional uh, storage systems we can scale this up to tens of thousands of containers and to up to a thousand of these HA enclosures, bringing us to very high performance levels on one hand and to exabyte level scale under a single namespace. Okay, so you're telling that this solution can start at one petabyte and can grow with up to exabytes, meaning that it could be uh, for large enterprises as well as uh, web scalers, these kind of guys. So. Uh, does it also mean that you are open to provide the hardware, but also to collaborate with, with your customer to take advantage of their hardware if they want it? Yes. So at the smaller scale, we find that most of our customers want to get an appliance, uh, buy all of the hardware from us, have our containers on servers that we sell them. And that is perfectly fine. Uh, we are happy to do that all day long. The larger deployments uh, we see that customers usually already have some type of container infrastructure in their data center some type of kubernetes orchestration layer and they are at that point happy to just buy the ha enclosures from us which have all of the unique hardware pieces the low-cost flash the 3d crosspoint the nvme over fabrics enabled uh, NICs, and run our containers on their existing compute infrastructure. In fact, the only thing we require then is for those compute nodes to have access into the HA enclosures, either Ethernet access or InfiniBand access. And so for the mid-range, we find that most of them would like to utilize their existing compute infrastructure and not buy servers from us, not buy uh, switches from us. On the very extreme, uh, in cases where we are dealing with hyperscalers that have exabytes of data, uh, we are in conversations about a software-only solution. Although I must admit, we have not deployed one yet. Okay. 
So, and we're talking about the, the hardware, but actually all the magic happens at the software level in, in your system. So, um, we didn't mention how you organize the data in the backend. We, we know now that you use uh, uh, as a lending uh, stage for, for, uh, for everything, the obtain memory, and then uh, when it's organized in the proper way, it uh, flushes down in, uh, on the QLC. Okay, in in a way that is uh, as balanced as possible. But uh, we didn't uh, mention the protocol you expose and how you organize uh, the data in the backend, at least at the high level. I mean, yes. So the fact that we are designing a new system for uh, low cost flash and 3D crosspoint affords us the ability to start over, and the fact that we're building this in a new type of architecture begs us to build new types of metadata structures. I'll give a couple of examples. For example, uh, all of our containers can access the same uh, cross-point metadata layer at the same time. Uh, if we weren't to build a new type of metadata structure, we would run into contention issues. We would run into consistency issues. And so all of our metadata is built such that every single container can read it at the same time as everyone else without taking any locks. And they can do this at the same time someone is writing to the data without dealing with any consistency issues. Basically, it's a tree, a, a very wide fan out tree that allows us uh, to update it using atomic operations. And so each container can crash between any two lines of code and nobody cares. This shared uh, metadata structure remains consistent. It also gives us a very unique advantage from the point of file systems and object stores. Uh, it used to be that file systems had limitations and at some scale you had to move over to an object store. And at some performance requirement, you had to move over to a block device. We, for the first time, can give a file system uh, at the scale of object and at the performance of block. And the reason is because of this new architecture, because of this new media type uh, that we are leveraging. So you can have directory structures in whichever way you would like, very wide, very deep. You can have files that are very small, trillions of them, or uh, a few very large ones, multiple petabytes in size. And our metadata structures always look the same. From, an, from a protocol perspective, today we expose two protocols, NFS, and S3, file and object, because those are the protocols uh, that our early access customers are asking us for. But the nice thing is that internally, we've abstracted our own uh, protocol, and we can put these external protocols on top of that abstraction side by side. So all of the protocols that we have today and all of the ones that we will add in the future are all native to this abstraction, so they all get the same performance levels. Also, they can all access the same data. So you can write something through NFS and read it through S3 or vice versa, and this will remain true for all of the protocols that we will add in the future. Very good. And, uh, and now I have a tough question. I, I mean, storage guys are usually very conservative people, you know, and and I saw the, the architecture several times, your presentation, 
and let's say that I'm convinced that you are uh, doing it right, okay? But uh, what these guys uh, think about uh, the first time you meet with them, I mean, it's too good to be true, okay? Yes. And somehow it's difficult to, to understand at the beginning. It's difficult to, to keep uh, all these things uh, together. Yes. So customers usually don't believe uh, the story the first time they hear it. And it takes us a while of explaining how it's done and why it can be done today and couldn't be done in the past before they realize that maybe this is possible. But the real proof comes when they start testing it. And we've had multiple dozens of customers over the last year and a half, starting with our alpha and then with our beta and now in GA that have tested the product. And they have tried to break it and they are always surprised with how resilient it is. The reason is both that we have a very experienced team uh, that has built many storage systems in the past, but more than that, it's an architecture that lends itself to simplicity and to resilience. And so it's very hard to break. Um, and customers are seeing that uh, through POCs and through testing uh, engagements that we have. In fact, today we have a dozen customers uh, that are already in production that have purchased the system and uh, we're growing that very quickly. Is it um, still a, a US market that you are looking for or are you uh, looking more to a you know, worldwide adoption? So we are focused on the US to start. The US is both the biggest market and uh, consists of most of the early adopters. Um, but surprisingly, we have had inquiries from Europe, from uh, the Far East of companies that have heard about us and want to adopt us as well. So I believe that by the end of 2019, we will start looking beyond the US. Okay, very good. I think we can uh, wrap up the episode now. We got a lot of insight uh, on your uh, architecture, on your product. Maybe you can share with us uh, a few links about uh, your website and, and where we can find more information about uh, vast data. And maybe if you have a Twitter account, uh, you can share also that one so people can uh, continue the discussion online. Of course. So our website is vastdata.com, V-A-S-T-D-A-T-A. -A -A. Uh, we also have a Twitter account under the same name, as well as uh, on LinkedIn. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, we were on Storage Field Day last week, and we gave a deep dive into the architecture, as well as a full session about early access customers and use cases uh, that we're seeing a lot of success in. So those videos are part of tech field day and can be found on YouTube. Okay, Renan, that was a great episode. Thank you very much again for um, spending the time uh, with me today and bye-bye. Uh, Thank you. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in Data Storage, please check out the other ones. Unstructured data management is the focus of a report Enrico wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how data storage is evolving in the cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.